झम त तोम त धीम तिट्ट Welcome to an off the beat dance podcast with Amaya and Kiran. I'm Amaya King. I'm a Kuchpudi dancer, dance educator and writer based in Richmond, Virginia. I'm Kiran Najgopalan and I'm a New Jersey-based dancer, choreographer, educator and writer. Looking back at the episodes we've done this season, whether we're talking about the dancers' experience, the audience's experience, or the rituals surrounding dance were discussing different facets of embodied practice. We want to lean into the idea of embodied practice by asking the question, what does embodied practice look like for Indian dancers, especially in the way that it relates to text and to the world around us? We're going to explore this question today with our very first guest interview. We are incredibly honored and excited to have our very first guest on Off the Beat. She's an award-winning dancer, educator, researcher, and writer who deftly balances artistry with scholarship as a Kuchipudi and Devadasi nrityam artist. She has successfully bridged her love for dance practice with academic research, and she's head of the Kuchipudi department at the University of Silicon Andhra. Please welcome to an off-the-beat dance podcast, Dr. Yashoda Thakur. Hi Kiran and Amaya, thank you so much for inviting me over to talk to both of you. Thank you for joining us. Just for our listeners, you may have noticed that over a few episodes we have mentioned Dr. Takor and her incredible work that she's done with dance scholarship. And we featured her groundbreaking work on the Sangeeta Samayasara and its real relevance to dance practice as we know today. Amaya, would you like to share briefly about the work that you have done with Dr. Takor especially while you were studying at the University of Silicon Andhra. Yashoda Mam was probably one of the first people I spoke with at the university when I was thinking about applying for my masters and I have to say I was incredibly nervous that day <laughs> because I had only seen her dance online and to actually talk to somebody that I had grown to admire was very daunting but since that time she has been such a warm and encouraging mentor not only for me as a practitioner of dance but for my interests as far as dance research and i know that she has played that role as a mentor for so many other students at the university and and beyond thank you so much shreya ma'am i'm so glad to have you here thank you amina you were a wonderful student on through thank you this is on the record <laughs> <laughs> One of the ways we start our podcast is to begin with a story. So, would you please share a story with us today relating to our theme of embodied practice? Jam ta tom ta dhin ta kitta ta dhin gina ta tam ta dhin gina ta tay ta dhin gina ta. So, since you say embodied practice, I'll talk about my teacher, my Kuchipudi teacher. Mrs. Shobha Naidu, and I'll continue to call her teacher from here. I I have been a Kuchipudi dancer. I've learned Kuchipudi dance from my teacher for fourteen years at the Kuchipudi Art Academy, Hyderabad. I did not watch anybody else perform for those fourteen years. It was only teacher, except once for Kalanidhi Mami. So whatever I dance. in kuchipudi is what i have taken from her by watching her because much as we call her teacher she was not the kind who really taught at least at that time she was not the one who she would give classes 
but she would not teach teach you know, because she was a performer she was there and we kind of absorbed whatever she did besides this i also look like her so there is complete taking teacher into me you know it's like being a second to her there was an incident when we went to sirpur kagaznagar for a performance for a dance drama and i got off the train the organizers came and quickly garlanded me i knew why they did that because i had experiences of people mistaking me for uh, for teacher so quickly i took it off and i said no no she's coming behind the organizer was very embarrassed because he said very sorry amma because the last time we saw her she was your age of 19 or 20 she came with empathy master i we completely missed the point that there has been a time lapse since then this little incident which was a uh, quite a joke for a while actually is of lot of significance for me today because i think of embodied history and i look at my body as an embodiment of the history of both the kalavantulu the devadasi dance and kuchipudi it began with kuchipudi when i began to question who embodies dance itself and you know there's this whole rhetoric of who dances and who doesn't it, it just went through my mind that teacher was not from the devadasi family so going by this argument are you trying to say the teacher shobha naidu doesn't dance she's not qualified to be a dancer can you even think of kuchipudi without shobha naidu then i realized i am actually embodying the history of kuchipudi through my teacher embodying this whole training of teacher on myself so this little incident actually speaks so much about the politics behind this That was a really really lovely story and I think for many of our listeners especially those who are around my age I'm 35 and younger we are also following the rhetoric that has been there about appropriation and casteism and embodied practice especially with the conversation around bharatanatyam kuchipudi to an extent but this is a largely bharatanatyam focused conversation that we've been having about trying to navigate what rhetoric is saying versus what you have learned and studied and having that sort of contextualized so beautifully through your story of having both the kuchipudi lineage through teacher and through teaching and pedagogy along with the familial blood lineage that is from the kalavantulu community converging and merging and sort of complicating the notion of embodied practice so beautifully. The idea of history and memory is something that we've danced around all season, but this is probably the perfect time to talk about this a little bit better. This is one of the areas where as somebody growing up in the diaspora, I haven't felt too comfortable directly engaging in this conversation because it's the fear of speaking about it in a way that is walking away from the stereotypes or the assumptions so i'm so glad that you have brought this topic front and center you show them mem in a way that we can engage in the conversation and talk through it in a way that is open and respectful and vulnerable because that is how we can learn and move forward of course amaya just to bring it back even to your story both of us come from the vempati style right that section of kuchipudi which has been made for us when vempati master said 
let the kuchipudi yakshagana be with the traditional families and they will perform it we will do a solo and dritinatakam part of it we we belong to that space you yourself ameya carry your mother's dance lineage don't you yes. from the venpati master yeah you carry the rhythm and the music of your grandfather so what would give me the right to peel it off you you yourself are an embodiment of this history that's coming from your grandfather and your mother so is the case with kiran too when he talks about his grandmother singing of course there is the argument that this whole art coming on to the bodies of the upper caste has happened strategically and it was a move to deprive our families from music and dance and that has happened efficiently i must say very sadly it was very efficient but i'm not in a position to blame the present generation for that i just feel the the society is changing and the present generation is sentient they are open to discussing these things thankfully it was not so even 15 years ago because even when i was living in india this is from 2007 to 2014 none of this rhetoric had come to any sort of conference or public forum even though there might have been conversations in private about this The more that I interact with younger students of dance and younger students because I also work in arts education, the more I am just astonished by how attuned they are to so many of the social justice issues that are around. So, I know I live in the US, for example, the conversation has started with systemic racism and has extended into the realm of what does this look like in terms of systemic discrimination. and there are dancers and there are young students who are grappling with real issues of casteism to go back to embodied practice in and of itself one of the first questions that we have for you dr takor i know you asked me to call you yashoda um it'll take me just a minute to get used yes. to that but okay <laughs> but hopefully by the end of the episode i'll be like hey yashoda but we'll see <laughs> the first question that i have for you is about embodied practice first of all defining it in a way that is concrete and also applicable to the way in which we practice dance now and whether or not that definition has a relationship to say some of the texts that we talk about in dance whether they're from the sanskritic tradition the telugu tamar or regional traditions i'd love to hear your thoughts about that how i understand embodied practice is the wearing of the practice on you and internalizing it completely so that you become the practice itself where do the texts come in is a question that is quite disturbing for lots of people who have formed their practice based on texts kiran there are so many who began dancing these classical dance forms neo classical forms because it's been floated that these classical dance forms come from the esoteric sanskrit texts quote and quote that kind of gives a validity for most families to be learning this dance and also when you say this text is very ancient and you don't give it a date it gets even more validity but then texts are something that has documented what existed art cannot jump out of a book right art can be a reference for you it can be a reference for the next generation what has been written today will be a reference for the next generation that's why we do our research that's why we write that's how they wrote too 
They wrote what existed at that time. They wrote the practice that was embodied by flesh and blood. When somebody danced and lived it, and it was their economy. Dance becomes important when it is the economy of that person. At least in my readings and my experience, it's only now that I see dancers who say, no, no, it's okay. Don't worry about dance. It's a spiritual experience. I'm only doing this to reach a higher realm in life. Sure. Reaching a higher realm is fantastic in whatever we do. It doesn't have to be just dance. But what about food? What about bread? When it becomes the economy of the dancer, it becomes part of society. It becomes part of the nation, right? When the person depends on it. That's where the problem came. When this was taken out of them, said that this has come from the texts and not from the women. And so the women were pushed to the background and the dance supposedly came from the text. And then it goes ahead from there saying, we are dancing this esoteric dance. What text are we talking about? If you are talking about the Natyashastra, whose date is still to be nailed, this Natyashastra is not even a text for dance. It's a text for theater. The first comprehensible commentary on the Natyashastra came 10 centuries later by Abhinav Gupta. What has been written 10 centuries earlier to be interpreted 10 centuries later, how much of a change would have taken place by then? Why do we say Abhinav Gupta is great? Because he had his own spiritual, philosophical, tantric angle that he gave to every line of Natyashastra. How valid would that be? And the other text, Bharatanatyam follows the Abhinaydarpana, is not even a complete text. It's a fragmented text. You only have the Angika Abhinaya in that. When he has said Abhinaya Darpanam, I am sure he has written about all four Abhinayas. It's only a part of it that we are taking and we defy the text. Are we trying to check from where the Abhinaya Darpana has been written? What was the basis for Abhinaya Darpana? Because by the time the Abhinaya Darpana was found and then printed, you will notice that most of the hastas that are there in Abhinaya Darpana are found in the dance of the Devadasi. But if I say this too many times, it's easy for somebody to say, oh yeah, the Devadasis followed Abhinay Darpana. Please, no, they didn't. They don't even know what Abhinay Darpana is. <laughs> it's, the, it's what they danced that has been documented. And there are so many hastas that the Devadasi uses that are not documented anywhere. At one time, in my teens, I used to think this should be a text, you know, this should be written somewhere. Today I feel, no, 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 let's not write it anywhere. Then they say from the text, the dance has come. So let it go from body to body. And that's how it's been in India always. History documentation has been through art, through sculpture and painting. You know, I went through a very similar journey when it comes to documenting items that I had learned from my teachers. When I was first in India, I used to document meticulously everything, draw stick figures and put the kanaka of the jatis and all that kind of stuff, then I would just put it away. I would not do anything with it because I would have written it down, memorized it, but it has to live and breathe in the body for it to be transmitted. If somebody picks up my book, they'll say, what is this chicken scratch? Whereas if they see it in flesh and blood, there's something tangible and visceral to be able to take from it and to be able to embody it for yourself in your own flesh and blood. 
and give it new life or a different sort of spin or of interpretation to it. Absolutely. I really love what you said about the economy of dance as well. For many of us dancers, is if we go into history, the dancing body is also at service to not only economics and colonialism. There is a lot of ways in which embodied practice is directly informed by economy and commerce, culture as an extension of power, and then hierarchy. All those things converge in embodied practice of the dancer as we know today, and the dancer of yesterday, and the dancer of tomorrow. Amia, did you want to add anything? I mean, at the end of the day, how society structures itself—that's not just dance or music. That's all of society. It's based on how power moves. This is where my political science background comes into play. <laughs> When we keep that in our in the back of our mind, whether we're looking at texts or repertoire or documented history or family history or you know how we're learning, it's the transfer of power that's happening and how we organize ourselves, what we deem is worthy to learn, what we deem is not. Appropriate or not good, and when we recognize that as another variable that's causing so much of how things move, it connects the dots a lot better. When we start filling in the color of the who and the what and the why, I think that's really where we start seeing these things at play. Why was it that dance was enmeshed in the economy at one point, and you had a community of dancers? Why is it that when that broke down? It all of a sudden it's supposed to be because it's art. It's it's supposed to be free. And what does that mean at at that point? Who has access? And then that translates into I think many of our own personal stories as we try to make it as dancers. What do we experience? This is a great segue to now discussing more about your own personal practice and artistry, Yashoda. Still, I'm getting used to saying Yashoda, but I've been following you as a performing artist and a scholar for some time, even when I was living in India. And the one thing that I really took to heart, especially seeing this as a as a living example of this, is bridging the gap between academia and practice, and then of course the greater world through embodied practice. I wanted you to speak a little bit more about the work that you had done to be able to bridge those three aspects of art together through embodied practice. So this goes back a little bit, Kiran. I must tell you the politics that are involved in this. I come from the Kalavantulu families, right? And the Kalavantulu is the Devadasi of the Telugu-speaking areas. I didn't know this earlier when I started dancing in the beginning. When I wanted to dance, my parents were fine with that, and they put me into dance completely. But the conditions were that I learn from a female dancer. I learn in an institute and not, you know, singularly in a house or something like that. The major condition was that I excel in my academics. It had to be a distinction that I I get all the time. So all the time I was working towards gay, getting my grades because I wanted to go to class. I was in dance class before school, after school, between school. Every time I was there, but I had to get my grades. This went on till my undergrad was done. So in my 11th and 12th also when i had to pick my topics my subjects i could not choose subjects like history literature which i really would have loved to do because 
it was important it is very important for us to be educated in the technical side of education right in academia because my father dreamt for a very long time that i would become an engineer or i would become a fantastic business administrator or a civil servant he had high uh, goals for me papa i didn't do anything that he wanted me to do <laughs> but i did my <laughs> i did my maths physics chemistry even with maths physics chemistry i had to be in the first class and then after my undergrad i said enough i've done what you wanted me to do all the time i was going to class to teacher right this was going on that was when masters at the university of hyderabad the central university had begun and i said now i'm done i'd like to do what i want to do and then i did my masters in the central university because kiran you must understand for us to be educated to be in spaces where i'm safe but not vulnerable to too much dependence was important academia thing right the the need to educate yourself was very important it still is so when i went for masters daddy said so will you be a professor in dance then i'll be happy so i had to work towards becoming a professor in dance for him i am very happy to do anything connected to dance that's how when i did my masters in dance and then i did my phd in dance then i gave guest lectures that is the area where academia came in but i never gave up on the practical side that was one thing i was always very often even today i'm very 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 of that because there's something about academia that all of us ameya all of us have to be very careful with that it sucks you into it and it doesn't leave you time to do your tam tata dindas every day you know it just makes you and you're all the time bogged down with this i didn't read that article i didn't read this book i need i didn't read, write that article so it was a very conscious move kiran for me to keep the practice going all through in fact the topic i selected is very quite not what i do now as part of my research but which is a big part of my life the my phd topic is yoga and dance which is also very physical because i wanted that that physicality to be there so for me the body is very important the body is my tool to see the world the body is my tool to be part of the world body is my tool to go even beyond the world but i don't think there's anything beyond the world is all within me so this body encompasses the whole universe within itself my joys and sorrows esoteric not so esoteric mundane everything is here through this body so to keep dancing to keep the body fit and this body is important because it carries a lineage it carries a history it carries a history of the dance itself like i do kolwetiwa rangasai i am carrying devulapalli krishna sastri and i am carrying uh, balantra purajini kantrao and i am carrying sri ranganatha the priest at uh, sri rangam the weaver who made the clothes at sri rangam for the lord i am carrying all of them on my body you will understand that academia is one thing it's fantastic because all this opening and understanding of so many aspects that come into dance has come because of my study and because of academia definitely but if i don't translate it into dancing then i'm only half baked i've done just 50% of the job the dance has to be there it is an effort there is no doubt it is an effort 
you know, having babies, educating <laughs> them, studying, reading, <laughs> dancing, right, Amiya? <laughs> <laughs> it's an effort, but it's a beautiful effort. Absolutely. I want to ask about something that I know we talked about in class, which was when you were working on translating the, the Nritratnavali, specifically where you were talking about the charis and the exercise that you were doing with the charis. I would love it if you would share that again and also talk about how that felt on your body as opposed to how you had learned the charis in the Natya Shastra prior to that. So, Ameya, um, I had learned the charis earlier. We learn it in our dance class, right? We are taught the charis. It's part of our training in the dance class itself. So I learned it in the typical turning the knees and bending the knees in the Aramande position that we do. And effectively, Kuchipudiized charis I have learned. When I was doing the Nritaratnavali, particularly the critical edition of the Nritaratnavali, I sat with my Sanskrit teacher of my plus two, who is now a professor at our University of Silicon Andhra Amaya. Of Sanskrit. Her name is Professor Vasanth Lakshmi. So, in her little room, I would sit. I chose her particularly because she's not a dancer. When I say Aramande, she'll ask me, What language is that? Which is true. <laughs> what language is that? <laughs> because it's not Telugu, it's not Sanskrit. So, the rest of the conversation is happening in Telugu. So, she'll say, I wanted that because it comes from a completely uncolored point of view, right? So she would read the sloka and she would say, you stand here and you lift your leg, you put it forward. Then I would say, I would turn my knees and sit to begin. She would say, why are you bending your knees? The sloka doesn't say that. And then I said, but that's how we've been taught. She says, if you've been taught that way, I don't know what that is, but the sloka doesn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> And Jaina particularly is actually bringing it from the Natya Shastra. So he says, do not bend your knees. He says, do it in Samapada. Put your feet together, stand straight and do it. That's the only way you can bring in beauty into the charis. And he says, don't do too much hand movement. Only do it if it is apt to the movement. You will not believe, Kiran, since both of you are dancers, you will understand what I'm saying. The minute I changed the way I was dancing to the way Jayana explained it, the kind of energy that flowed in the body was different. The nature is different. Then I may be questioned saying, so are you saying whatever you danced earlier was all very bad? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that energy is different and this energy is different. Jayana he didn't care. He didn't have to cater to anybody's tastes or he didn't have to get ratified by anybody when he spoke of the charis. He didn't have to get a classical status by Sangeet Natak Academy. So he could just write what he saw. Whatever he wrote when I danced, there is this kind of joy. I, I think I did that in the videos at the university, right? I mean, yes. we saw the videos. There's so much abandon in it. When you previously learned the charis, the way we learned it in Master Garu school, this is the movement, right? This is the name of it, and this is how you do it. And that way of learning is different, as opposed to when you have the instruction manual, in a sense, and then you have to translate that to your body. If you think of the charis, what comes to you quicker? Is it what you did by following the instructions in the Nritaratnavali, or is it what you learned? Yes, that's the one that comes to me. I've completely given myself to, right? I've taken it from her, and it became my my bodily 
experience and it comes back to me from within the body. That's beautiful. What are questions that you think we should be asking ourselves? These are questions that have come up in the next generation, Amneya, but all the time, all the time, it is necessary for all of us. There is no you and I. Now all of us are dancers. For all of us to question as to where has this particular piece come from? So if you go a step further or backwards, whatever you, however you want to look at it, also check on who has written it, for whom, in what conditions, who danced it. You don't have to replicate it. You don't have to be that dancer. The, the beauty about Indian dance is we do not have to do Coca-Cola production. Right? <laughs> we don't have to do cloning. That's the actual beauty. Somehow we are losing that. We are getting into this kind of producing clones. We don't need to do that. We should not be doing that. It's a great disservice to the art. Once you find out everything about that particular piece, then own it. Make it your own and do it. Think of all the people and every element. Give time to each song. Give that time, understand, make it yours and dance. I just feel when you make the effort to find out in full, the universe has a way to give you and bestow that grace on you, to give you more and say, yes, now you're ready to dance it, dance it. And when you dance it, if you feel no guilt and you feel happy, you feel the powers that have gone into the making of that particular piece are supporting you, just be with it. And I think by doing that process, you'll have allowed that piece to not only sit with you from a text perspective or a music perspective or a dance perspective, it'll be like osmosis. It'll sort of live in a way that is special to you if you give it the time and the intentionality that you had just mentioned. As a dancer that's been choreographing for some time now, the act of choreography takes a lot of time. So each piece that a student learns, they should also be mindful of the amount of effort it takes to birth it by the person who has created it. Yes. Like all of these gems that we have from, say, the Vemperti Bani, they were not just birthed overnight. No. They would have had to have also been embodied by so many dancers to get to the state that it is able to transmit as a gem. Yes. It becomes all the more important to take this approach where you have to sit with the item and make it your own because most of us will just watch what happens on stage and take that and then just do the same thing because that is sort of what gets you known. Or the YouTube. YouTube. I hate YouTube for this reason. <laughs> um, but sometimes if you are in a creative mood, you just want to sit and you just need to sit with it and you need to read, you need to feel it. You need to do it in the privacy of your own space. You don't have to project it onto social media. But this is very antithetical to the way things are because of social media. So I think about embodied practice as how it has changed because of social media. What are your thoughts about that, um, Yashoda, ma'am? About social media? You're asking the wrong person. <laughs> no, or about, or about embodied practice now itself. I know when we were learning, all of us learned dance in an analog era versus a digital era. Yeah. <laughs> Free smartphones and cameras. But that's how dance has to be learned, Kiran. There are no two ways about it. The, the only way music and dance is learned, I'm sure that's the case with painting and sculpture too, but I have never touched that area, so I can't talk about that. Music and dance has to be learned directly person to person. 
Yes, it can be, you know, online and technology can come in during pandemic just to keep the continuity. But that can't be the way it is taught forever. I may be questioned saying, but you teach in an online university. Yes, I teach in an online university. But the students I teach are not coming to learn dance per se. They are not learning the tam digitai onwards. They have been trained and they come there to learn everything else that has gone into dance. And we are not teaching them anything. We are opening them up to learning. And that, that's what we are trying to say when we talk about academia. Where is the end to learn? You just open them up to so many areas and say, explore. When it comes to learning item after item, I don't see any sense in it at all. Because after a point, whatever you do, you are repeating, right? The song may be different. The ragam may be different. The choreography may be different. But you as a person, as a dancer, who has only been learning and replicating, which is good when you are below 21, it's good to just learn and replicate. That's a certain exercise. Because Indian dancers can call them dancers after they are 30, 30 or 35. Why are we Yuva until 40? Yeah. I, I, I never understood that. And in <laughs> the US, for example, I'm considered a mid-career dancer. But I also appreciate the fact that you're still considered a young artist yes. because we don't age in art the same way that they age artists here in the US, where it's very youth-oriented in dance. So at 40, you're starting to blossom, which I think is very compelling because there isn't as much ageism. Yes. And there's that time to, to just absorb and to try and to tinker. Yes. And then life experience is also taken into consideration as well. Absolutely. That, that's what I always say. I say 40 is such a wonderful age. From 40 onwards is when for Indian dancers, that's when the world of dance actually comes in comprehensively. You know, it comes in completely to you. You have to stick on to it. Where is the time for a person who's just replicating what the teacher has taught, even after when they're 25, 30 or whatever, and not letting it sink? After a time, you will anyway do only, right? It will come back to that. It, it will come back to what you have already done in the first 13 items that you have learned. Unless you want to do, you want to go way back and explore more, or you want to go forward and do something else. And that needs time. This thing of YouTube and recording the class and going doesn't work. I just feel dance has to be understood and experienced as something in the body and part of society. Do not remove it from society and make it a diva dance or make the dancer a diva. You're not doing the dancer a favor. You're not doing yourself a favor as a dancer if you make yourself a diva. You have to be part of the society, live with everybody else, and dance has to be an activity as any other activity in society. That's the only way the art survives, the artist survives, and audience continue to enjoy and understand what is happening. That is the only way the dancer and the audience become more sensitive to issues that have been problematic earlier. 
and the issues are not simple we didn't get into the depth of those but those issues are not simple and we cannot get into the depth of it in in a 20 minute podcast anyway it is something everybody has to do find out for themselves that happens if the dancer is in the society part of the world we are privileged and we are honored to have you as part of our first guest interview Thank you so much Kiran and Amiya for inviting me over. I enjoyed this thoroughly and I do hope this will be of some use to the dancers who listen to this. Tadhi inganatata. Tadhi inganatate. Tadhi inganata. So Kiran, I think that was quite the conversation we just had with Yashoda ma'am. I want to do what did we learn in two parts today? First talking about what we learned from our conversation with Yashoda ma'am and then look back at the larger season and see what we've learned overall what do you say there was so much to unpackage from Yashoda ma'am's brilliant responses to our questions about embodied practice and i loved her story that she had shared at the beginning for me personally what i had learned was that a dancer's lineage and relationship to history is very complicated in yashoda ma'am's case she has two lineages that she talks about the first one of course being the kuchipudi lineage that she had gleaned from her teachers who had taught her and that history of pedagogy now runs through her body and the second thing of course is her bloodline coming from the kalavantulu community of hereditary female dancers and those two threads of lineage manifest themselves and converge beautifully in her dancing body And so this allowed me to understand that as dancers your lineage that you have gleaned from pedagogy or from instruction or teaching is equally important. And so I love the way that she had related this directly to who can dance, who should be dancing and those questions which are very difficult and very challenging to grapple. And the second thing that I learned from Yashoda ma'am is the idea about dance in service to your life. And that is something that I will continue to really make sure that I embody in not only my practice as a dancer, but in the service that I provide through my art. Amaya, what did you take away from Yashoda ma'am's beautiful conversation? The thing that I took away from today's conversation what are ways that we can think about our dance experience there's the school that we belong to who do we learn from there's also what we learn in the studio or what we've done on stage there's obviously this whole textual tradition which we've been parsing over the course of the past few episodes and that we've also touched on today what i thought she beautifully reminded us is the idea that our own life our own experience unrelated to dance informs us as dancers and that is not something that we should be ignoring or discounting absolutely and because she stressed that everything starts from the dancing body you cannot distinguish what that body does in other contexts too and the way that she contextualized this in terms of her own practice was really illuminating amayo 
What else did you learn in terms of not only Yashoda Ma'am's conversation, but about the season as a whole? The season as a whole was an opportunity for me to dig into and crystallize some of my philosophies towards dance. I think that text was obviously something that we centered our conversations on, but the beautiful thing that came out of it was that Indian dance comes from a plurality of textual traditions. It's not just the three or four books that we always cite as the end-all be-all. There are also incredible wells of information, whether we're looking at regional texts or manuscripts that maybe we don't necessarily turn to as much in the larger discourse. That was one big thing for me. And the other thing it really helped me get clarity on is that texts are a conversation. We can converse with texts. We can ask questions of the texts and bring that into our practice. We can generate texts, right? We can write about what we believe in, what we're seeing, what we're learning that are responding to what's happening in the world around us, to what we're dancing, as well as what has been documented before. But at the end of the day, what is important is that we dance. Kiran, how about you? For me, this season was illuminating, especially because we talked about centering joy in several episodes. It is joy that not only centers us and moves us as dancers, experiencing the beauty of dance itself in our practice and performance, but that joy is also what links us in terms of our intention as dancers to the perception and reception of art by an audience. And that joy is such a beautiful conduit for that experience. And then, of course, we spoke a lot about rasa theory. What I got from our conversation is that it seems to be useful as a thought exercise. In terms of my relationship to my own practice, I'm not sure if rasa theory, as we understand it to be with its formula, as we had spoken about, really works with the way we dance now, especially since rasa theory is essentially conceived of as a theory that started off in drama and then went into literature. And then as the art form started to become separate entities and specialized disciplines, there's some holes in that theory that I just don't see how they can be reconciled with the way in which we dance now. And that's something that was very difficult to come to terms with this season, only because we're taught that you know, certain things that we hold sacred in our texts that we study as Indian dancers essentially translate to lakshanam or grammar. And rasa theory is part of that idea. But to see it clearly having its issues with the way in which we think about performance and practice and intentionality now was something that I found difficult to first absorb. And then once I did, I realized it's all right. The text is a conversation, as you had said. It's not a manual. And so this kind of undoing of preconceived notions of certain things that are taught to us as dancers and this questioning is probably the most important and valuable lesson that I've had doing a podcast with you like this. The other thing that I feel like is most central to me in my current state as a dancer is that art feeds life and life feeds art. And you cannot divorce life from art and you cannot divorce art from life if you are a serious, thinking, mindful dancer. Or if you just want to have fun. And with that, let's turn to our call to action for this episode. 
going with what Yeshua the man was saying earlier, I think our call to action is dance in service to your life, your community, and the world around you. And share with us whatever you're doing. We'll see you next season. Today's episode would not have been possible without the incredible support and encouragement of our amazing listeners, as well as Dr. Yashoda Thakur. We edit podcasts for audio engineering, Sangeeta Kaushik for graphic design of our logo, Daya Arts, and finally, a very special thanks to Wesley Beeks and Bertel King Jr. I would like to take a moment to thank each and every one of you for listening to Off the Beat and for your amazing support and feedback so far. Ame and I are both first-time podcasters, and this project has been a deeply fulfilling journey for both of us, and we'd love to keep the conversation going. So please continue to like, subscribe, and review our podcast, and help spread the word about Off the Beat to your friends, family, and colleagues. Tell us what you'd like to hear in Season 2 by sharing your thoughts on our social media at Off the Beat Dance on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and now TikTok. And finally, please consider supporting us through Patreon at www.patreon.com slash offthebeatdance with a fully tax-deductible monthly donation towards development and production costs for new episodes of Off the Beat.